Bibles, please, to Matthew 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 27 and then put your finger there and then flip over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 and 17 there. So I've titled this morning's message, uh, The Mountaintop Experience. And uh, have you ever had one of those? Have you ever, the greatest experience that anyone and any human being can have is to experience God, to meet God, to know the Lord our God. It's the greatest experience that we can have, and it will be like that through eternity, by the way. But the reason why I wanted us to go to both Gospels here, and actually we could go to Mark 9, too, if you're taking notes. This is another parallel passage. I think it's important as you're studying the Scriptures, especially as you're going through the Gospels, to compare the, the stories because they're not in, in contradictions of one another. They're complementary. And so you're able to get a fuller, more round picture a lot of times uh, from the various Scriptures and the stories that are mentioned in the Gospels. So, uh, and this is one of those cases. So as we start out here in Luke... 927, <clears throat> uh, we're reading of the transfiguration. In verse 27 in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they sing the kingdom of God. And now it came to pass about eight days later, these things, uh, after these things, that he took Peter. John and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who had appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And two men who stood with him. And then it happened that as they were departing from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now as we turn over to Matthew's gospel, it's important that we understand that they have made this trek. You look at the geographical locations. These are important as you develop the story here. And this is nearing the last days of his earthly ministry. He's left the northern part of the Galilee there, Capernaum, Bethsaida in that area, and they've made the trek up about 25 miles or so to Caesarea Philippi at the, mount of base, uh, the, the base of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi. And so a lot of this is taking place there, uh, and it's important that we kind of tie what happened uh, here in verse chapter 16 with the transfiguration. And so I'll pick it up uh, in verse uh, 17 when he's just asked them to identify him, you know, who do you say the son of man am? And, G and of course, Peter pipes up and 
you know, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered and said, Simon, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, Hades, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And then we move on to the end of the chapter, and we read, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But as he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And now when they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. That's sufficient. Let's go return back to chapter 9, where we find ourselves making our way through the, the Gospel of Luke. And so the question again, have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Now, no doubt this was a mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John. And if you've had one, would you like to have another one? You're like little kids? Do it again. <laughs> Don't you love little guys? You do something, they're amused. Do again. You know, and we, we like things that bless us. We like joy and we love happiness. And I believe that God wants us to have those mountaintop experiences on occasion from time to time. There are peaks and valleys that we go through in our journey from earth to heaven, and I think it's important that we have them. And I think they're often used to encourage us because there's a lot of things in this world that can discourage us. There's a lot of things that can make us sad and, and, and tragedy and things that happen in this fallen condition. But I believe that God uses these mountaintop experiences to sort of help us stay on track. And, and I think he reveals special things to each of us personally that we need in our journey. John 14, 29 tells us, and you can pull that up. Uh, John 14, 29 says, Now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And so revelation, and this is what was happening here, the disciples are receiving a serious revelation. Mountaintop experiences are often filled with revelation. A revelation of greater knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of the purpose that he may have uh, for your life. He's un he gives us his will, his his direction, his purpose for our lives, and if you will, in broken fragments. He doesn't uh, just dump out 
here's your life, and this is what you're going to do. If, if God did that, we'd all run and hide because <laughs> we would see the trials. We'd think, well, you know, if I don't go there, I won't experience that, right? We'd have some way of, you know, circumventing what God wanted to do. So he just gives it to us as it's needed. And one of the ways that he reveals that to us is through these mountaintop experiences. And we see here, uh, as we will see as we break this down a little bit and unpack it, is first, the first step is always through prayer. And so, uh, anyway, these, um, they're good and they're helpful for us. And I think that's why it's important. The Gospels are so powerful. Because Jesus, as a man, is revealing how God works with mankind. Yes, he's a special man. He's the God man. He, he's become a sibling, if you will, which is really kind of hard to get our minds around the fact that God would incarnate and become human. And why would he do that? You know, I mean, he had to do it to save us, right? We understand that. But he's going to be, he's, he considers us his brother. And that's not going to change. He's our sibling. It's hard to get your mind around that, but that's the position that God has granted to us as his children. And, he, and so we can glean from how the Holy Spirit led him because everything that Jesus did, we know, was under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. As I hear the Father, I do. They're not my words, they're his words. And this is the kind of life uh, that he modeled for us. One of the things that we've read here in the Gospels is that Jesus begins to deliver a message to them that they didn't understand and they didn't want to hear, they didn't want to receive it. The fact that they knew he was God in the flesh, it's now been revealed. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of Luke is to reveal the identity of Christ. And they get it. Who am I? Well, you're the Christ. And then right after that, he says, I'm going to die. Wait, what spiritual joke are you playing on us now? Wait, you remember the boat trip across the thing when they said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And they're thinking, okay, which one of you guys forgot to bring the bread? You know, they're just, they just didn't get spiritual lessons very well sometimes, right? And so they're, they're, they're starting to try to figure Jesus out. And when he talks about dying, well, that, wait a minute. That's, there's some deep hidden meaning. Uh, no, not from Jesus' perspective. And this is really what we have a confirmation of. And Peter gets rebuked for trying to interfere with that. He was thinking as a man. So, uh, and it, it's not necessarily Peter's fault. He just had the popular view of what Messiah would be like. Just not much has changed, has it? We all have our views of the second coming. We all have our ideas and how it's going to happen. Well, the contemporary view at that point in time was found in John twelve thirty four, if you will. Uh, the people answered, we've heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, you guys know who that is. That's, that's Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. So how, they could not reconcile. And there's a lot of things in our lives that we can't reconcile. They seem to be contradictory, counterintuitive, like, wait, wait. And this is one of those. Look, if you're going to endure forever, how is it that you die? So in their minds, when they understand that Jesus is going to rule and reign and establish his kingdom, they're looking in the here and now. It wasn't to be that way. Because before Jesus could reign in glory, he must first suffer and die. And this is what Moses and Elijah were bringing to him in this uh, particular 
story. And this is, there's a lot here that we can easily just pass over uh, and let go. Some of the things are a little bit deep. I really appreciate Dr. Heiser's perspective on this story. And he begins with the controversy that there are different opinions, if you will, over this story of, upon this rock, I will build my church. <clears throat> of course, the Catholics interpret this as Peter being the rock. And if you read the context, most of us think, well, it's Jesus. Upon this rock, I'll build my church, which would be the, probably the best way to interpret that. But where is he standing? This is interesting. Because if you understand a little bit about the Jewish culture and their views, their perspective, uh, uh, they understood uh, through the ancient writings that Mount Hermon was the mountain in which the angels, 200 of them, according to uh, some of the readings from the Dead Sea Scrolls that was uh, found in 1948 in the Qumran Caves, uh, some of the material that Peter, Jude, would have known and read because they refer to it in their, in their epistles. But uh, Mount Hermon and the base thereof was the gates to the underworld. And so Jesus is making this statement as he's standing there at the base of Caesarea Philippi saying, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so that's really interesting. It's almost as Dr. Heiser interpreted this, is that he's provoking a fight. In about a week from that moment, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. He's provoking, as he says, a fight. So what's going on in the unseen realm then? Well... One of the things that the Unseen Realm members, now this would be Ephesians 12, guys, or Ephesians 6, 12, uh, the principalities, the powers, the rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness, you guys know the list. Those are the members of the Unseen Realm. They're hearing this. The gates of hell should not prevail. What Jesus is saying is, my church and the mission that the church will have will not be hindered by the authority of the unseen realm. The church, in the Great Commission, we go to the citadel of the evil one and we deliver those that are sentenced to death, of which we were in that citadel one time. We were in the city destined for hell. And somehow, God, through his spirit, reached through those gates of hell and pulled us out from among the dead. And that's what he's saying. The church will be victorious. The gates of hell are not strong enough to withstand the mission of the church. And that's important for us. Now, these powers uh, uh, in the unseen realm were provoked. Satan in his pride, blinded by his hatred of God. Think. They're trying to figure out. They don't really understand exactly why Jesus is here. Remember when he uh, takes the trip across the, the lake to the Gadarenes and the, and the devil-possessed guy comes out and begins to speak to Jesus and says, We know who you are, Jesus, 
the Holy One of God, have you come to torment us before the time? See, they know there's a time coming, and they're going to they're gonna die. They, they, have, they have lost their uh, immortality. They're now mortal. They're going to die. There's at some point in time, there's going to be a death sentence, and they're going to be executed, as it were. You know, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, right? And that's going to happen. And so this, is, this was uh, known to them. So if Jesus is here, why is he here? Is he here to establish the kingdom? You know, there are some standing here, so he says to the apostles, that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. That's how it's said in Mark 9. So somehow, in his words to the, the, the unseen realm, they're listening, they're paying attention, they're trying to figure it out. He's going to establish the kingdom now? Well, we can't let that happen because if the kingdom gets established, that means the time is now and we're toast. So how do we deal with this? Let's kill him. Let's use the Pharisees. Let's use the religious establishment and let's take him out. That's what happened, right? That's how we see it rolling out. Well, Paul has a commentary on this. If you want to pull that up for 1 Corinthians 2... 6 through 10, he alludes to this, Paul does. He says, however, we speak the wisdom among those who are mature. So what I'm talking about has got some depth to it. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? <coughs> what? Well, keep reading, keep praying, keep studying. You'll get it. You should be able to understand it with this. However, we speak the wisdom among those who are mature yet not the wisdom of this age. And then what he's talking about is the epoch of time between what's going on in his ministry and the time in which we live. This is an age. This is a, a dispensation, if you will. Not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a, the wisdom, hidden wisdom of God which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, eye has not seen, ear, nor ear heard, nor has entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us, through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, the question begs to be asked and answered, who are the rulers that he's talking about? Do you think he's talking about Caesar? Do you think he's talking about the establishment? No. Who, who are the rulers of this age? Who has blinded the hearts and minds of mankind through the ages? It is that list there in Ephesians 6.12. It is the powers. It is the principalities. It is the rulers of the darkness. If they knew that in crucifying Jesus was their defeat, they never would have done it. It was their defeat. So Jesus is there at the base of Mount Hermon. He, I agree with Dr. Heiser. He's provoking upon this Rock, I will build my church. Oh, yeah? We'll take you out. Exactly what needed to happen, what was preordained and foreordained by God to happen for our salvation and for 
the Messiah to first suffer before entering into his glory. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it easy to understand prophecy 2020 hindsight? Just the way it is. You know, we'd like to, we're trying to figure it all out when he's coming, right? When is, you know, is it pre trip, post trip, or when is this pan trip? It'll all pan out in the end, you know. I don't know. But that's a de- deviation here a little bit. I digress. We're talking about the need for us to walk with God and from time to time have these mountaintop experiences. And so I want to unpack this in a little bit and draw from that because I think it's a great story. It's, it's neat to have those, that knowledge and that understanding of how God pulled this off in such a powerful way. But we must apply the scriptures, read them devotionally. And, and so there's a little bit of spiritualization going on here. And I think sometimes we're allowed to do that in a good way, in a safe way. I think the first thing we see when it comes to mountaintop experiences is timing. Now, in one scripture here, you see we read six days, another one eight days. Hold on here. For all you concrete thinkers and you literalists, to, to a fault maybe, well, that's a contradiction. No, not really. It depends on how you count the days. If you count the days, it's about a week, okay? That's the main point. Let's not miss the obvious here. Somebody's counting the day before and the day after. That's, if I remember right, six plus two is eight, so that's how I would reckon that there's a difference. But that's really not the most important part here. What is important is that God has something for you and God has something for me. And it's based on timing so often. It's important. He doesn't tell us any sooner than we need to know. But he's never late in revealing to us what we need to hear. And that's important to remember that. And not only is it the timing important, but who's with us? You know, we're not lone rangers. Notice that there's James, John, and Peter all together. The body of Christ is very important. You know, we seek, it's really good, it's safe to seek the Lord as a group. To, to have, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything be established. Because God works that way. We're not lone rangers. In, in fact, sometimes I, I look at this and I think, could you imagine the conversations these guys must have had after the fact? Did you see what I saw? You know, I mean, this was an incredible revelation to them, a ex- uh, mountaintop experience, if you will. But what did they see? They saw the next thing, the transformation of Jesus right before them. Um, in these mountaintop experiences, uh, this is often one of the things that happens is we're changed. We are never the same Paul, the apostle, was never the same when he met the Lord on the way to Damascus. Was he not changed? This is what happens. And this is a good thing. This is not to be feared. In this case, Jesus, as he is praying, as we read there, as he prayed, verse 29, the appearance of his face altered. This is why praying is the key to have an mountaintop experience is the key element within experiencing God. We come to know God through our prayer time, through our devotional life and our time spent with him. The more you get to know him, the more you love him. There's a change. That's where the transformation takes. You can go to church, be faithful all your life, and that's good. You'll absorb and be changed to some degree by that faithful church attendance. 
but primarily it's your daily time, regular time of coming before the Lord, just allowing him to just speak to you and reveal himself to you in his, through his word. It says here that uh, Jesus' face did shine. You know, Matthew uh, read there in 17.2. Um, just think about that face for a moment. It's now shining with brilliance. Literally here, it's, it's white. There's no and in the original. It's just white glistening. It's, it's uh, this lightning flashes almost. It's sort of the glistening, just a, a coming from them. Imagine uh, in about a week, that face is going to be beaten beyond recognition. That beard is going to be plucked out. He's going to be blindfolded and beaten. You know, it's one thing when you get into a fight to see one coming. It's quite another to be blindfolded and not see anything coming and the damage that that would do to you. The bruising, the swelling. You know, think of, you know, a boxer going 15 rounds. You know, you're just, you're beaten, you're swollen. And then to have your beard plucked out. Do you think that shining face was subjected to that willingly for you and for me? That's, it's hard to get our minds around that. His clothes, it tells us that were also altered. Now, in this particular comparison here, Luke uses the word altered, which is Haran, and it just means different. So he became different in front of them. Matthew chooses to use the word uh, metamorpho. And so we have, uh, we get our word metamorphosis. And so essentially what we have going on there is in prayer, as Jesus is praying, there's a metamorphosis that takes place. And what is inside him, which is the real person, the real you is on the inside, is it not? Your soul and your spirit, that's who you are. This is just your vehicle. This is your, what you get around in on this level of existence, the physical realm. But inside is our spirit being. And so what has happened there is, the, in a sense, the flesh is being pulled back, his bodily flesh, and the real identity, the real person of who he is, God of very God, comes shining forth. And it's a mind blower, obviously. It's, that didn't, didn't change who he was. He wasn't a different person. It's just who he really is is now revealed in this different form. And it, he's actually entering, if you will, the spirit realm. That is a, that gate, you know, it was a gateway, not only to the underworld, but it was a gateway from heaven. This is where the angels, the 200 angels that descended uh, from heaven and decided to do their evil deed in Genesis 6. This is where it all came down, according to the book of Enoch and some other writings. And, you know, they're not, they're not canonical, I get it, but they're still, they, they were the books, they were the material that the apostles read. It was the spiritual paradigm that they had, and it was shaped by that. Again, they're not canonical, but they give us insight. So we have this gate to the underworld. We have the gate to the unseen realm, and Jesus is in that realm, and he's meeting this is incredible. Two guys that had long passed away, Moses and Elijah. And we won't spend a lot of time on that, but what do they represent? They represent the word of God. In our mountaintop experiences, in our walk with God, we can never deviate from, number one, prayer, 
And number two, the guidance through our prayers, and that is the word of God. We need the law to tell us what's right and wrong, and we need the prophetic utterance of the prophets. We need the word of God. Everything that God wants to do in your life will be found within the scriptures. That's all you need. Your experience will, any experience we have will always be judged by the word of God. If I can't find it in the word of God, then just leave it there as an experience. That's how we see these things. Now, this whole thing is about the coming kingdom. You know, this is something that Jesus has, you know, laid the groundwork. He set this whole episode up of the transfiguration. There are some standing here, and obviously this is a very mysterious passage. There are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God with power. Well, what does that really mean? Does it mean the day of Pentecost? Does it mean the transfiguration where they saw Jesus in glory? It could be both. I mean, it's, it, it's like I said, we don't, we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but it's interesting. And there's this whole thing about the kingdom of God that is very mysterious to all of us because John the Baptist came on the scene, and what did he do? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Be baptized. Turn, turn your heart to the Lord. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's saying the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's near. Well, did the kingdom of heaven ever really get established at the time of Christ's first coming? And so he had to explain this to the Pharisees because they weren't getting it either. And sometimes I don't get it. it in reality, the kingdom of God is here, but yet, not yet. Not in its fullness. And this is what he said to the Pharisees in Luke 17. He said, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And so the kingdom of God is established within the inner man and the heart of man when they repent and when we turn to the Lord. But eventually, one day, there will be the physical return of the king. And the king will establish his kingdom. He will set his, he'll be riding on a white horse. And guess who's coming with him? The armies of heaven. And guess who make up the armies of heaven? You and me. And we'll be riding horses. I think Jesus' horse is, horse is white, but we'll be on horses. I think he's got a bigger horse, but that's okay. He'll be riding on a white horse, and where is he going to put his, where is he going to land? Anybody know? Mount of Olives. His feet will sit down on the Mount of Olives. What will happen? It's going to split. I'm going to judge the nations. He's going to set up his kingdom. That won't happen like that, like we might want to picture in our minds. It's going to take some time. Take a few days, probably. 45 days in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the judgment of the nations, how they treated Israel. There's a lot to unpack there. The point is, it's coming, and nobody's going to stop it. Aren't you glad you're part of it? Isn't that great? What a privilege to be part of God's kingdom. And this is what uh, he was going to use the apostles for. They were the foundation. They were the ones who would, who would, at the day of Pentecost onward, would establish the church. They were his instruments. They were given great authority. I give to you the keys of the kingdom. 
What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's tremendous authority. We have the same kind of authority, not apostolic authority, but we have authority as his sons and daughters to bind and to loose, to establish the kingdom of God. This is what the gospel message is all about. This is why Jesus established the mission to go into all nations because when the fullness of the Gentiles happens, it's over. He's coming when he's gathered the last Gentile, the remnant of the Gentiles, and he gathers that up and the fullness is complete. Then the second coming will be the great tribulation and God cleansing the earth so he can return. But what happens when he returns to the enemy? Toast. It's over for them. So now you can understand why Satan attacks the church so strongly. Because if he can keep us from doing the Great Commission, it sort of delays the inevitable. And he's all about delaying. He already knows he's beat. He wouldn't like to admit it. He cannot beat God. He will never defeat God. But he's, in so many words, he can delay. Delay, delay, delay. That's their little mode, right? He will not delay at some point in time. The fullness of the Gentiles will happen. Do you understand why uh, he was convinced the modern church, probably the Western culture church, to you know, just be happy having a Sunday morning service and be happy that we're Christians and that you know, we're caught up, in, caught up in that. But what about the mission? See, this is what we have to be constantly getting back to. And our church is now growing to the point of maturity where we begin to reach out and do the work of the ministry and fulfill the Great Commission. We need to pray. This is one of the things we can pray for on Sunday mornings. Pray that the spirit of evangelism, the gift of evangelism, would come upon our church. Let us be obedient to the Great Commission. The quicker we get the job done, the quicker we get out of here. I don't know about you, but I like when jobs are done and I can go home. Let's get this one done so we can go home. That's the objective. Now, as we come to the end here um, of this text, there's just special, um, you know, you notice in verse 30 and 31, uh, Moses and Elijah, he's just talking, they're just talking with Jesus, but here it tells us exactly what Jesus is hearing from them. Uh, you know you're going to fulfill the word. You're going to fulfill the Old Testament law and the sacrifices. They spoke to him about his decease, the mission of why he came. That's not given to us in the other Gospels. You see, again, the importance of reading all the passages to get the fuller picture. It's really a blessing to us. But what is similar is the voice. So this will be the second time that we hear this voice at the baptism and then here uh, in the mountain of transfiguration. This is what happens when we have an experience with God. We really hear the voice of God. Now, it may not be in English, but it will be embossed upon your heart. You will know, you will understand, this is what God wants me to do. And unless you know that, don't do anything until you know this is the direction you're supposed to go. Prayer, the word, and listening for that small, still voice in the direction that God 
would give. And it will come at the mouth, it will be confirmed at the mouth of two or three witnesses. These are important things to understand uh, in knowing the will of God. But the voice, this is my beloved son, hear him. Peter, listen up. He's going to die. You're not the Pope. And hear him. Was there any doubt in their minds that he was divine, that he was deity? Jesus, now, Luke has fully established the identity, the identity of Christ. If there was any doubt, which I don't believe there was, that there was any doubt that Jesus was the Messiah in their minds, it went away in this moment, in this experience. And then the, the clinching moment was to hear this voice. Now, I think the first time that you and I hear the voice of God when we enter into heaven, we'll have a body that can handle it, but in the flesh, it's terrifying. Remember how the Israelites responded when God showed up on Mount Sinai. They freaked. They were so petrified. Moses, can you do us a favor? You, you go up in the mountain and you talk to God and whatever he says, you can tell us and we'll do it, but no more of these manifestations. That's a paraphrase, obviously. God's voice, the voice of many waters, thunders and lightnings. I mean, we can't get our mind around it. Do you understand? Well, they were afraid. What do you think? They're cowards? They were f- freaked out. I think a supernatural experience with God should humble us. I've had people come to me and say, an angel of God appeared to me. Okay, that's possible. I mean, we can entertain angels. But when I see and sense an arrogant spirit or a self-exaltation about this so-called experience with some supernatural being and it hasn't brought humility, I'll question it. If we really have an encounter with God... It will bring humility, brokenness. There will be a trepidation and a fear that overcomes us like, whoa. You know, this is what the presence of God, this is what the voice of God does to us. It humbles us. You know, isn't that really what it's all about, you know, in, in, in our walk with God? Um, sometimes it's through our failures that we develop a broken and contrite heart. I mean, this is Psalm 51, right? You know, a broken heart, a broken spirit, a contrite spirit, God will not despise. He loves that. Those who fear and tremble at my word that are contrite, oh, God's all over that. And so, but we don't have to let our sins and our failures bring us to that point. We can learn to just yield. We can learn to see ourselves as he sees us. We're just dust. Our, you know, our inabilities to hear, to know, to do, and just learn to rely upon him. I think it's important for us to pursue God. I think it's the greatest pursuit. I think having mountaintop experience or just simply walking with the Lord every day, that's, that's what Paul's saying. For me to live is Christ. You got a better way to live? You got something that's more important than this? 
And of course, you might say, well, you're the pastor. You've got to be that way. You better be that way because you're our pastor, right? Well, we're brothers and sisters. And you know what? We're going to spend a lot of time together on your side. So let's seek the Lord together. You know, I'll close with this. You know, we want to have wonderful experiences in the Lord. And we'd like to have them repeated, right? Do again, right? Peter's like, you want us to build three tents? Can we build three tents? You know, he's thinking kingdom. He's thinking Feast of Tabernacles, right? Let's just get it on, Lord. I'll be at the right hand. And I don't know about James and John, but I don't care about them. I'll be at the right hand. You know, all that stuff had to go away, didn't it? You know, sometimes we just want to linger in his presence. We want to be with him more. And so we have this ebb and flow. This is, you know, it's the normal thing of life that we have these peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. But no matter where we're at, I think scary ones in a sense and I'll say this, this we should be really on our guard when we have the mountaintop because we can get inflated with spiritual pride you imagine how they already had some issues going on right Peter, James and John I don't know about you other nine but we're special you know they were they, and they did they had a different kind of relationship with Jesus and they also suffered greatly so that's how God tempers this. Too much is given, much will be required, and the only way that God can keep us centered is through our sufferings. So, but don't be drawn away or dr- pulled back from suffering. Paul learned to rejoice in the trials and the tribulations because he knew and he understood that principle, that as we suffer, we receive more grace. And that has a way of keeping us broken and contrite so God can use us and we don't get lifted up with pride. That is something we all have to fear is to be elevated above what we are. We, we need to learn, to, we have to learn to stay in our lane, right? Stay in our sphere of influence. So God is so good at that. So, because um, I know that there's, I've had conversations with people, well, I don't really want to have too much of an experience with God because I don't want to, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, you don't have to worry about that. God's really good. Angels have little pins. They're able to pop the spiritual bubbles, pop our pride really easy, right? Paul had one of those, right? A thorn in the flesh. And so God has ways of balancing it out. Do not fear any of that. Just seek the Lord and seek what he has for you. How does God want to use you to fulfill the Great Commission? You may not be an evangelist. You may not have that gifting, but, you know, there are those who go to war, and then there are those who stay with the stuff, right? Not everybody has the same mission, but we, but we all have the mission. And so I'd like to put that, have you put that on your prayer list. Make our church an evangelistic church, and may we begin to really reach out places of where we work, where we go, and what we do. May God give us a boldness. Shall we stand and prepare our hearts as we close? Father, we thank you for your word. Just these few things that we're able to glean from this incredible story. And whatever 
is for us, Lord. Individually, just speak it to our hearts. Bring us to that place where we hear your voice, that place where we really understand the direction and purpose that you have for our lives. We don't want to go to the left, Lord. We don't want to go to the right. We want to just stay on the highway of holiness and find your heart and just simply walk with you. Help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we?